Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let's go ahead and read our passage in 1 Corinthians. We'll open up in prayer. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. God, we do want to pray for those in Ukraine, particularly for those who are in Christ who are suffering. Pray for your will to be done in their life. God, we see here in, in this passage that Paul suffered death. He suffered persecution. It was not something that was foreign to him, and it's something that is not foreign to these believers. God, we know that you have a, a purpose and your will is perfect. We pray that you will use it for your glory and to your honor, to your purposes. But we pray that these men and women, if it is your will, that they would be rescued from uh, this tragedy. They would be uh, spared their lives, that they would be able to share your truth with others and that even by their suffering, even in their death, that they can be a, a testimony to us, to, to others, and uh, we know that you are good and that your will is perfect. And God, as we open up your text and we look at this uh, difficult, obscure passage, we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us insight, that we would be men and women who walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received, that we would be diligent students of your word, that we would act as Bereans, and we would study, and we would question, and we would have an understanding of what it was that Paul was trying to communicate to the Corinthians, what their understanding would have been, and how we can take and apply that to our life. God, I thank you for this book. I thank you for this church who went through so many struggles, this church that we would not hold up and idolize as an ideal church, that we can learn from them. God, I pray that our local assembly here, that our body would be uh, a body that would reflect your desires for your church, that we would be holy, that we would live holy lives even as you are holy, that we would shine as stars in a crooked and perverse universe, that we would be men and women who wear your name well, who go out and proclaim your truth, and who have a, a love and a desire not only for your word, but for you personally. God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for this letter. Uh, be with us as we open it up. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right, so we are jumping right into the, the middle of this chapter. This chapter that, as Rex pointed out, is really centrally focused around this idea of the resurrection. And so before we just jump in here at uh, where we left off last week at verse 29, let's go back and kind of recap where we have been, where we're coming from. Uh, we know that in the first several verses, verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, Paul is talking about 
the gospel and what the gospel is. He says that, um, that he is to preach the gospel of first importance that um, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so he's focusing on the aspect of resurrection, even in that preaching of the gospel. And then he goes on in the following verses and he talks about how this gospel, this resurrection has been verified, that it's not just something that man made up, it's not just something that he decided to preach one day, but it's a, a resurrection that was witnessed by, um, by several people, by James and by Peter and by up to 500 people at one time, that it was a verified resurrection. And then he talks about in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's a big deal. We see and we learn right here that some of the believers, or some of the, the party rather, at, at Corinth, they were denying the resurrection of Christ. That is wildly inconsistent with Christianity to deny his resurrection. He says, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And so here in this section, starting in verse 13, what he does is he offers a, a counterfactual. He says, let's just pretend, let's hypothesize for a moment that Christ has not been risen from the dead. Let's, let's make believe, let's pray, play pretend that Christ has not been raised from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, or rather, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And furthermore, not only has Christ not been raised from the dead, but the apostles who are constantly preaching the resurrection, well, they're all false teachers, and we should just lay them aside if there is no resurrection. And Jesus himself, he would be considered a liar because Jesus preached his resurrection, right? Jesus showed up and said, look, here I am, touch my, touch my hands, touch my side, I'm alive. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not only has Christ not been raised, not only are the apostles a bunch of liars, but Christ himself would be a liar. There would be no Christianity at all. We would be lost and we would remain in our sin. And then verse 18 says that those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they also have perished if there is no resurrection from the dead. And then verse 19, he says, if there is no resurrection, then we of all men are most to be pitied. That we should be pitied, that you should show shame to us because we have given our life to this gospel, to this doctrine, which is central to the resurrection. The resurrection is central to the gospel of Christianity. And then he moves on from that counterfactual. He's done playing pretend for a moment, right? And in verse 20, he proclaims absolutely, this is a great verse, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Not only has Christ been raised from the dead, he's been raised from the dead as the first fruits of all creation, of all those who are asleep, and that we also will be raised with him. Uh, he goes on, he talks about how Jesus is the second Adam, how the first Adam came and he messed everything up for us, right? That we are born in sin and we are to inherit death because of Adam's sin, but Christ is the second Adam. Christ is the perfect man. And as the perfect man, he has taken and established his kingdom. His kingdom has already been established when he came. This kingdom 
is being built and all of creation is groaning together and will be redeemed, will be restored, will be resurrected in the proper time. And King Jesus will put every single one of his enemies under his feet, up to and including death. And then he will take and he will subject himself to the Father so that the Father himself may become all in all. That's what we just spent the last two weeks talking about, this, this tangent of the kingdom and how the kingdom really interrelates with his resurrection and the future resurrection of the church and of all things and how it's all tied together. And it's such a beautiful passage talking about how Christ has indeed risen and we will rise with him and we will reign with him as he will reign in his kingdom, which is already established but not yet fully realized. And then at the end of verse 28, uh, somehow the New American Standard ended that with a period rather than an exclamation point. Um, I put an exclamation point in my Bible because, again, that's just great, right? Um, and then he follows it up in verse 29 with another uh, counterfactual, with another contrasting word. He says, otherwise, otherwise, had not all this taken place, had Christ not truly risen from the dead as a first fruits, have we not been promised this resurrection? Has he not been um, the one to establish his kingdom and who is going to bring forth his kingdom to completion and hand it over to the kingdom. If none of that were true, again, another counterfactual, let's, let's play pretend again. Um, he's going to, to offer two different objections to this counterfactual, saying otherwise. I think when Rex was reading it in the NIV, he said, if there is no resurrection. So again, we're, we're entering into that mindset. We need to keep that in mind throughout this passage that he's offering this um, as a counterfactual. And throughout this uh, section, he's going to offer two objections to this counterfactual or two affirmations of the resurrection. Once again, we move back into uh, this aspect of Paul presenting uh, kind of polemically the idea of the resurrection. And as we look at these two affirmations and the rebuke that follows, what we're going to see is that uh, poor belief results in poor behavior. And poor belief results in poor behavior. And we'll see that it's Paul's desire for the, the Corinthians that they behave as the saints of the kingdom that is both already and not yet. That they believe, behave as saints of the kingdom that, again, has already been established but has not yet been fully recognized as those who have both a past and a future in Christ because of the resurrection of the dead. That is his desire, that they live as the saints that they ought to live as, not in the inconsistent way that he is getting a report that they have been living, as if there is no resurrection. So, uh, looking at the first of these objections or uh, the first of this, these affirmations that there is, in fact, a resurrection. Uh, we have this idea in verse 29 of the baptism for the dead. Verse 29, saying, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, this is a highly disputed verse, very controversial um, not a lot of people can agree on the interpretation of this verse, except for the fact that nobody agrees on the interpretation of this verse. Uh, Schreiner, 
is quoted as saying, unfortunately, we do not have any certainty about what baptism for the dead means. Many different interpretations are proposed. Matthew Henry says, this is a very difficult text and various uh, and variously expounded. J. Mack says, this verse is one of the most difficult in all of Scripture and has many legitimate possible interpretations. And then Gordon Fee says, at least 40 different solutions have been suggested for the understanding of baptism for the dead. 40 different solutions for this one verse. Number one. I'm just playing. <laughs> we would be here a while. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways to understand this verse. Uh, it's a, a text that many have many questions about. And even here, we have many questions about this. Even in the past month, I've been approached several times with uh, a question, what does, what does this mean? Tell me about baptism for the dead. This is a, a question that um, is really in our mind. This random, obscure verse has been brought to our attention specifically, in large part due to the influence of the, the Latter-day Saint Church and their understanding of this passage. Uh, this verse is instrumental in one of their primary doctrines, one of their primary truths that their church is really centralized in and focused around, this baptism for the dead. And John MacArthur says of this verse, not affirm, affirmingly, but negatively, he says that we can be sure that 1 Corinthians 15.29 does not teach vicarious or proxy baptism for the dead, as claimed by ancient Gnostic heretics such as Marcion and by the Mormon church today. Paul did not teach that a person who has died can be saved or helped in any way by another person's being baptized in his behalf. Baptismal regeneration, the idea that one is saved by being baptized <clears throat> or that baptism is in some way necessary for salvation, is unscriptural. And if a person cannot be saved by being baptized, he certainly cannot be saved. He cannot save anybody else by that same act of baptism. And we learn from this statement that John MacArthur makes um, that there are two primary issues with this understanding of vicarious baptism, of being baptized on behalf of somebody else in a, a saving vicarious proxy type way. The first issue is that the Bible doesn't speak of any second chances after death, that we don't get to live this life and then have a second opportunity to embrace Christ, a second opportunity to receive the gospel. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes not baptism, but judgment, that we die and then the judgment. Uh, second issue is that baptism never saves anybody to begin with that those who are alive and are baptized aren't saved by their baptism, either in full or in part. Baptism has absolutely no bearing on our salvation. We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone. Baptism is an outward expression of what God has done within us, that we have been put to death with him, we have been raised again to new life with him. It is an outward expression of what has already taken place, a picture, and has no bearing whatsoever on our salvation so therefore, it can have no bearing on the salvation of the dead. So this is absolutely part of one of the, the interpretations that we can lay aside and we can say, this is what it does not mean. Well, in that quote that I just read to you from John MacArthur, he mentions uh, a man from the early church, 1st, 2nd century, Marcion, 
and he calls him a, a heretic. And he speaks pretty boldly against him. And I want to read to you a, a quote from another man, a man from the 4th century, uh, Chrysostom. And he has harsh words for uh, Marcion as well. And he says in his homilies on 1 Corinthians, I should first mention how they are infected with the Marcionite heresy um, before this expression. I think I wrote that down incorrectly. <laughs> um, let's see. So, yes, he's going to explain um, this false understanding of um, baptism for the dead as Marcion and his followers would understand it. He says, after a catechumen, that is, one who is prepared for baptism, but not actually baptized, after he was dead, what they would do is they would hide a living man under the bed of the deceased. And then coming to the bed of the dead man, they spoke to him and they asked whether he would receive baptism. And he, making no answer, because he's dead, the other replied in his stead, sure. And they baptized the living for the dead. So this was a practice that Marcion developed, Marcion came up with, and it was recognized by everybody in the early church as being heretical. Clearly this is not commanded anywhere in Scripture, and the early church understood that. What he was doing was a heretical practice. And so now, getting back to what Paul was actually saying and what Paul's uh, understanding was, what he was trying to communicate and get across, um, when looking at... Uh, a difficult issue in the Bible. One of the first things that you want to do is you want to see, okay, well, where else is this word or this phrase, this doctrine taught by this same author? Well, the problem is Paul didn't talk about baptism for the dead anywhere else in all of his 13 letters. In fact, nowhere else in the Bible do we read about baptism for the dead. This is the only place that we read of this random phrase, baptism for the dead. And in fact, the Book of Mormon doesn't talk about baptism for the dead either. That's a doctrine that is developed later on and uh, really it's derived from a misunderstanding of this one verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. So we're left with this one obscure verse. And what we can see from this verse is that Paul does not command baptism for the dead. He doesn't say that it's something that we should do. He doesn't uh, even approve of it, but rather he is illustrating an understanding of the resurrection. Remember, again, he is speaking hypothetically. So he's already affirmed back in verse 20 that Christ has been raised from the dead. Not only has he been raised from the dead, but all in Christ will be made alive with him. That he must reign until he is putting all enemies under his feet, and then he hands over the kingdom to the Father. And so, once again, let's imagine, right? Let's uh, hypothesize that this didn't happen, that Christ has not raised from the dead, that there is no resurrection from the dead. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead aren't raised, why are they even doing what they're doing? Why are they being baptized for the dead? Now, the most compelling reason for why it is that we should not practice this, um, this practice, that we don't even know what it is. First of all, we don't know what it is, but um, I think the most compelling reason is that um, Paul speaks of them in the third person. And so, as we're going throughout the, the text this morning, we need to pay special attention to Paul's use of pronouns. That 
here in verse 29, he is speaking in the third person. He doesn't say this is something that I do or something that we do collectively. This is something that is a, a Christian practice. He doesn't even say speaking to the Corinthians in, in the second person. He doesn't say this is a practice that you have, but rather he says this is a practice that they have. This is something that those who practice baptism for the dead, what about, what about them? What about what they're doing? And so it's important that we recognize that, that he is really distancing himself from them and from this practice in the, the pronouns that we see here, that they are the ones who are practicing baptism for the dead. And while it would be nice to know who they were, who Paul was speaking of, and what this practice that he's talking about really was, what it meant that they were being baptized for the dead, uh, we don't know that. We just don't have that information, either uh, biblically or extra-biblically throughout other history. We're not given that information. But we can tell from the text that Paul was speaking to the Corinthians in a way that they understood who he was talking about. They understood what was going on. And his main point is not that they should practice this, not that this is a custom that they should embrace, but he's saying even those people who are doing this baptism for the dead, even these guys, as confused as they might be, they understand that there is a resurrection. That's his main point. He's saying, if there's not a resurrection, then why are they doing what they're doing? Even they know that there is a resurrection from the dead. Now, uh, a second objection to this, this hypothetical, if Christ is not raised, um, we see that Paul speaks of his suffering and his persecution. He says in verse why are we also in danger every hour? So here again, we see that he's moved on from third person. He's not talking about them anymore and their understanding of the resurrection by their baptism for the dead. But he says, even we, this is an internal argument, an argument that he is, um, he is counting himself amongst. He says, we in 30, 31, 32, he says, I do these things. I suffer daily. I die daily. So he says, um, why would I continually embrace this hardship? Why would I suffer? It says in verse 30, every hour we are also in danger. Continual hardship. If there were no resurrection from the dead, it just doesn't compute. That doesn't make sense. Of course, there is a resurrection from the dead. Otherwise, why would we suffer continually every hour? Going back to uh, even before Paul was a believer, back in Acts chapter 7, we see the first martyr in the church. We see how Stephen was martyred for his faith. He was killed for his faith because he suffered every hour, because he believed in a resurrection. Ten years later, uh, James was martyred. In Acts chapter 12, we read about his martyrdom. And he also suffered for the sake of Christ because he realized and he believed in a resurrection. And Paul himself later, he would be beheaded by Nero, as would uh, all the other apostles save John. They would suffer a martyr's death because they truly believed in not only Christ's resurrection, but in their future resurrection as well. They were under constant torture and martyrdom. They were being beaten and tormented because they understood that to live is Christ and to die is gain because they had an understanding that they would, in fact, be resurrected. I want to read to you uh, from 2 Corinthians 4 and kind of get a glimpse into this suffering, this constant suffering where they were being in danger every hour. 
2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 8. Paul, in this next letter to the same church, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. He says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Now, get this, he explains why. He says, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Jesus who died is now alive, and that life is to be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. And Paul says, we also believed, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. The reason that they are suffering this torment, that they are being persecuted, struck down always, every day, constantly, is because they have a hope in the life to come. Because like Jesus was resurrected, they believe that they have a future resurrection. Therefore, they're willing to endure this suffering, this persecution, the harm that is constantly being poured out upon them. Uh, likewise, in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter uh, where we see all these heroes of the faith, this chapter of faith, we read about those who suffered persecution. And in verse 32, Paul says, well, man, time would fail me if I went on to talk about all these other people. He says in verse 33, these people who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, they shut the mouths of lions. Don't you think that could be kind of dangerous to be in that place where you're able to shut the mouths of lions? Um, that's quite dangerous, right? They quenched the power of the fire, which means that they were in danger of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword, which means that they were threatened with sword. From weakness, they were made strong. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead from resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Again, this is their hope, to obtain a better resurrection. They're fighting lions, and they're escaping fire, and they're escaping swords because they want to obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36 and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated, because they had a hope in a resurrection. And even Christ himself, just a few verses later in chapter 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, where we're told that we should be fixing our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? Because of the joy that was set before him, because he also had an understanding that there is a resurrection. Paul, in this whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, he is trying to explain to these Corinthians, some of whom have denied the resurrection, that there is indeed a resurrection, and that it affects their life, not only later, but it affects their life now, that poor beliefs result in poor behavior, and that what they believe about the resurrection has true and everyday implications. Right doctrine is inseparably connected with right behavior. We have to understand truth first before we can put it into practice. 
we need to be looking forward to our future resurrection. And in doing so, this should lead to godly living. If we are living as if there is no resurrection, then we are not living as Christians. We are not living as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. Looking back in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is giving this, this second objection to this counterfactual. He's saying, in fact, there is a resurrection. You guys say, there's not a resurrection. Well, I'm here to tell you there is. Even they recognize it by their practice. And we recognize it clearly by putting ourselves in danger every hour. Verse 31, he says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. Now, this verse is uh, kind of difficult to read. It could be read a couple of different ways, but really what Paul is saying is that to make sure that they understand the truth of his constant facing of death, he's saying, I swear to you, um, it, when he says, I affirm, in the New American Standard, he says, I swear, this is an oath that I'm taking. I promise you that... Um, that by which is, is dearest to me, that is your salvation, that I indeed suffer this death every single day. He says that your salvation is what I swear by. Your salvation, which really I have no boasting in, but it's all of Christ. Um, their own existence in Christ is what Paul says, I promise that this is a, a physical death that I am being uh, I am being tempted with or um, I am being exposed to every single day, that he is enduring a constant threat of physical death because of his hope in the resurrection. So this is not just a, a spiritual death that Paul is talking about when he says he faces death every day. Um, we know that uh, we do need to die to sin and live to Christ, and that's a, a truth that we see in Scripture. But he's talking about a physical death here and how he uh, is faced with this death every single day. He swears by it, and he gives an example of that in verse 32 when he says um, that he fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, again, this is another area of dispute where many commentators reject the, the literal understanding of this, that he was fighting with physical animals, that he was really being uh, challenged or put in, um, put in harm's way by these physical, literal wild beasts in a Colosseum-style event. And they say that there are several reasons why they don't embrace a literal understanding of, of physical beasts. First off is that, remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. So as a Roman citizen, many people believe, well, there's no way that he would be exposed to this kind of harm, to this kind of torment. Uh, secondly, this practice of throwing people, Christians in particular, into uh, an arena with wild beasts, that really wasn't popularized until the second century. And <clears throat> so Paul must not have been fighting with actual physical beasts. But they say that these physical wild beasts, or that these wild beasts, rather, are speaking of his adversaries, of human adversaries that Paul had in Ephesus when he was ministering there. In the, the next chapter, in chapter 16, uh, verses 8 and 9, it says, Paul says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened up to me, 
and there are many adversaries. So there are reasons to believe that maybe Paul was battling against these adversaries who were coming up against him, and he was calling them wild beasts, which is something that was done several times throughout the Old Testament where uh, adversaries of people would be explained or described as wild beasts. And this is something that Paul himself even does in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. And there he says, At my first defense, nobody supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. And so there we know that he's speaking of those who came up against him. And he's calling them the, the lion's mouth. So perhaps that's what he's doing back here in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about these wild beasts. He is um, speaking hyperbolically and calling his enemies, his adversaries, wild beasts. However, I am not so sure that we should be so quick as to discount the possibility that Paul was actually spared by physical wild beasts. I think that is a, a legitimate possibility, uh, especially when we look at the number of other things that Paul was spared from in this wild, crazy lifestyle that God allowed him to live and all these other tragedy, tragedies that uh, really attested to his apostleship and, and the suffering that he had on our behalf, on behalf of those that he was ministering to and, by extension, uh, you and I benefit from. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, we get a, a brief overview of many of the, the crazy uh, adventures of Paul. He says, starting in verse 23, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, which is what they would say was one less than what would kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So Paul went through the ringer for sure. I wouldn't put it past him to have actually fought with literal wild beasts and to have been spared by them. Uh, but anyway, we want to get back to the main point. What is he getting at? He is saying that he has suffered and he has suffered for a purpose. He has suffered because he has resurrection in mind. If not, then Paul truly would be insane to suffer and to put his life in constant jeopardy for the sake of others if neither he nor they had any hope in the resurrection. Paul uses these two examples, the, their, whoever they are, their practice of baptism for the dead, Paul along with the other apostles, and their willingness to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. They both scream and shout that there is, in fact, a resurrection. And he is uh, pleading, really, throughout this whole chapter with the Corinthians to embrace that reality that there is a resurrection. And we see the, the natural results of rejecting the resurrection in uh, 32, in the second part of verse 32. So he says, if it was only by human motives that I went out and I fought with wild beasts, that wouldn't make sense, right? 
I didn't wake up one day and just think, I want to go fight some wild beasts. Um, he says, if it was by human motives that I did these things at Ephesus, then what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, again, this counterfactual, if they are not raised, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's nothing after this life, then why don't we live like it? Let's be consistent in our beliefs. Let's be consistent um, to, to the truth of Scripture. So this is not just a, a phrase that Paul pulled out of thin air, but this is a quote that he picked up from Isaiah, Isaiah twenty two twenty three, And in that chapter, uh, the Lord had just pronounced judgment on the nation of Jerusalem. And they, in their atheistic type thinking, in their hedonistic type thinking, they thought, I'm just going to eat and drink and be merry rather than repent, rather than change my behavior, rather than change my mind about the, the truth, change my beliefs and my behavior. I'm just going to live it up. I'm going to live for today. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And that's exactly what they did. And you better believe that God was not okay with that. Uh, he was looking for a repentant heart, and Jerusalem did not offer that repentant heart. Uh, they went out, and instead of repenting, they didn't turn their, their eyes to Jesus, but they turned to, to gaiety, it says, to joy. They turned to gladness and to festivities. They thought, we're just going to go out and party because tomorrow we die. This is absolutely the, the mindset of hedonism. Hedonism is a mindset that is all too popular today. Hedonism is the, the pursuit of, of self-gratification, seeking to, to lift up yourself and to do whatever your own heart desires to do. Just like in the days of the judges, they did whatever was right in their own eyes. They did whatever brought the most joy to them in the moment, to live your life to the full. You guys heard that phrase, that saying? That's definitely popular today, right? Or this new saying, YOLO. You only live once, so go out and do whatever you want. Eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. That is absolutely the mindset and the worldview of many in our world today. And to be honest, that's a consistent mindset with an atheist. If you don't believe that there's a God, if you don't believe that there's a resurrection, then why wouldn't you just live it up if tomorrow we die and then we cease to exist? Better live it up for today. The problem was these Corinthians who are believers, they're living inconsistent lives. They're living with this hedonistic kind of mindset that there is no resurrection. And it absolutely shows. Again, as we've been reading throughout this book, we see that they have a complete apathetic attitude towards grievous sin. In chapter 5, there was a man who had his mother's or his father's wife, and the church was okay with that. They were embracing this kind of sin that was so gross and grotesque even to the unbelievers, even to the, the Gentiles, because they didn't have their beliefs grounded in the truth of the gospel, because they were denying the reality of a resurrection that led them to embrace things that they otherwise would never have embraced. In chapter 11, they were gathering together for the Lord, Lord's Supper, and they were drinking themselves to the point of drunkenness, because they were not living in the light of the truth of the resurrection, both of Christ's past resurrection and of their future resurrection. They were living inconsistent lives. They were living as hedonists, practically. And he says, going on, um, 
in verse 33 says, do not be deceived. This is a, a call, a plea for them not to be deceived, but to realize that bad company corrupts good morals. Now, this word for, for company is interesting. It's uh, in the Greek, homilia, and it just means a, a gathering or an assembly of people, right? But it also has a, a connotation of uh, a speech or a sermon of a homily, right? Um, homilia, homily, it's not that difficult to make that connection. And so it's the, the idea that it seems like Paul is trying to get across here is that they were listening to and associating with these false teachers, these false teachers that were saying there is no resurrection, these uh, false teachers that were, were chirping in their ears, right? Tickling their ears, telling them what they wanted to hear. And they were not realizing that these poor beliefs would in fact lead to poor behavior. And several times throughout Scripture, Paul warns people of this, that bad company corrupts good morals. I just want to read for us in Ephesians 5, one of those times, when he encourages these believers at Ephesus, he says, Let nobody deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light, or what light produces, consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And these Corinthian believers were not living in the truth of the resurrection. Rather, they were being swayed by this bad company that was among them, by the false teaching and assembly of these other uh, false teachers that they were being influenced by. Now, if believing in the resurrection for uh, Paul and those others who were persecuted daily, if that resulted in holy living, then disbelieving results in wicked behavior. If they are denying the truth of this resurrection, then it makes absolute sense that their behavior is going to follow, just as we've seen throughout the first several chapters of 1 Corinthians that it in fact did. They were not an ideal church, one that we want to imitate. And this hedonistic behavior is absolutely consistent with that kind of mindset of denying the, the resurrection. And um, Paul is calling them here to repentance. Paul is rebuking them pretty harshly, in fact, telling them that they need to change their mind because inconsistent beliefs result in inconsistent behavior. And they are to live as children of the light. I want to read to you a, a quote from Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson, in this quote, he says, if you would actively fight for heaven, what he really says is, I changed those words, actively fight. He said, if you would be violent for heaven, uh, which is kind of cool wording, but it's kind of antiquated a little bit, so I changed it. But he says, if you would actively fight for heaven, take heed to listen to the voice of such carnal, take heed of listening to the voice of such carnal friends as they would call you away from this blessed fight. Fire, when in snow, will soon lose its heat and by degrees go out. Among bad company, you will soon lose your heat for piety or holiness. The company of the wicked will sooner cool you than your company will heat them. Vinegar will sooner sour the wine than the wine will sweeten the vinegar. And then he says, How often do carnal friends do the same to our souls 
as infected people do to our bodies by conveying the plague. So he equates people who are living for themselves, living for the world, living hedonistically, and the effects that they have with the effects that somebody who had the plague would have on their physical bodies. He realized the true depravity of man and our, our propensity towards sin, that we're not going to, with our, our coolness, so to speak, he talked about fire and snow, we're not going to affect them more than they're going to affect us. If we're hanging out with them, if we're rubbing shoulders with them, we need to be careful with whom we associate ourselves, with whom we listen to these this company of people, this homilia that we subject ourselves to, that we listen to. And Paul here is calling out the Corinthians for that very thing, uh, rebuking and warning them. We see that uh, in this phrase, do not be deceived, but even more so in verse 34 when he says that we are, that they, rather, we by extension, are to become sober-minded. He says, you guys are, you're living like you're drunk. You need to stop living like you're drunk you need to uh, really put your head on straight and act as you ought. He says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. So he is associating what they're doing, their bad beliefs that lead to their bad behavior with sin. They're denouncing and denying the fact that the resurrection is true. And he says that is absolutely sinful. For some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. This is the, the second time that Paul has used this kind of wording in this letter that he says, I speak this to your shame. The first time was back in chapter 6 where these believers, they had issues amongst themselves and rather than being able to settle it amongst themselves, even though they were one day going to judge angels, they went to people outside of the church and they said, you guys judge our problems. You guys tell us who is right and who is wrong. And Paul said, that's absolutely shameful. I say this to your shame because he wanted them to repent. He wanted them to change their belief and their behavior subsequently. And he does the same thing here. He says, I speak this to your shame because he wants to shame them into changing their thinking and changing their behavior. There is no way that they should be listening to and following the advice of these false teachers. They should rather be embracing the fact and the reality, the truth, that there is a resurrection. He says this to their shame. Now, if they were to follow that advice, if they were to repent and put their, their understanding where it ought to be and understand that they were truly one day going to be resurrected again to, to new life, to a second life, that they were one day going to stand before the God of the universe and they were going to give an account for everything that they have ever done whether good or bad, that they would be raised to uh, stand before the throne of God. Don't you think that would change their behavior? And shouldn't that change our behavior if we have an understanding that we will one day be standing before the throne of God and we will be giving an account to him? Our beliefs affect our behavior. They change our behavior. Not only our position futuristically, but now in this life, our behavior is shaped by what we believe and what we deny. And really, if you think about it, what these other people were doing who were practicing baptism for the dead, um, this doctrine that they made up, there's nowhere in Scripture that 
um, tells us that we should be baptized vicariously for somebody else's uh, salvation. So they really made up a, a doctrine because of their, their concern for those who have passed away, because of their love for the dead. And I'm not at all saying that we should go and follow that example and make up doctrine, but if they have that same kind of love, or if they have that kind of love for those who have died, uh, I think we can ask ourselves, do we have that kind of love? Do we have that kind of burden and passion for those who are alive today that we are willing to do whatever it takes to, uh, to share our faith with them to, again, uh, expand our sphere of influence to encourage people to realize themselves that Jesus has died, been buried, and resurrected. And we, too, will be resurrected one day, either to everlasting life or to everlasting death. And we are ambassadors of Christ, being given this ministry of reconciliation to reconcile a lost and broken world to a holy and perfect God that they have been estranged from. Are we going to have that same kind of love and passion for the living as they had for the dead? I want to close with uh, 2 Timothy 4, where Paul says, For the time will come, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to lies and myths. That's absolutely speaking uh, of our world today. That's representative of what our world has done today. They have turned aside from truth and turned aside to lies. Uh, let us, as ambassadors of Christ, as ministers of reconciliation, as believers and, and children of God, let us not have that be said of us. God, we once again thank you for your resurrection, that we serve a living Savior, that Christ is not dead, but he is alive, and that he is the first fruit of our resurrection, that we will one day be raised to new life in him because of the blood that he shed for us. God, we pray that, that that would be a reality, not only in our minds, but in our hearts, that we would live every day in the truth of that reality, that we will be raised again to new life, life everlasting, that we will live with you, that we will see our God, our Savior, our King, we will stand before you and give an account. God, help us to walk in that truth and that reality every day and to do so with a, a heart and a desire for reaching the lost. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.